Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. After 18 years at the helm of her party and 13 as Chancellor of Germany, the era of Angela Merkel is over. Bei der Bundestagswahl 2021 werde ich nicht wieder als Kanzlerkandidatin der Union antreten. On Monday, in the wake of two damaging state election results, Merkel announced that she's giving up the leadership of her Christian Democrat Party and that this will be her last term. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, after Merkel, what next for Germany and for Europe? She was the politician who emerged from East Germany after the fall of the Berlin Wall to become a defining figure across Europe. For Merkel's critics, she was also a leader who imposed stringent austerity measures to stem the Greek financial crisis. But for many liberals on either side of the Atlantic, she was the face of a humanitarian solution to the mass waves of refugees and migrants who flooded from Syria and North Africa in 2015. The Chancellor of Welcome at a time when others were closing borders. We have a duty to meet those people who come here in dire need with respect. Our cover at the time called her the indispensable European, but her grip on power loosened after a punishing election result last year. Our then Berlin bureau chief, Jeremy Cliff, warned of a critical moment ahead. She's running the risk of the curse of the fourth term in the chancellery. And in fact, when she became chancellor, she said that she didn't want to stay in the job until she was, in her words, a half-dead wreck. Merkel has commanded the European stage, often sending critical messages to Donald Trump about the perils of ultra-populism. At home, though, the rise of the far-right AFD, Alternative for Deutschland, and the collapse in vote share of the main parties ate away at her command. Celebrations there at results parties for the progressive Greens and for the far-right AFD, both benefiting as voters abandoned Mrs Merkel's Christian Democrats and their coalition partners, the Social Democrats, for more emotive, ideological alternatives. Merkel appeared visibly shaken as she announced her decision to step down. It has always been my wish and intent to carry out my state and party duties with dignity and one day also to leave them with dignity. At the same time, I know that in politics things do not always go as planned. So what went wrong for the grand doyen of European politics? Joschka Fischer was German foreign minister and vice-chancellor from 1998 to 2005, and he led the country's Green Party for almost two decades. He spoke to me on the line from Berlin. Fischer recently said, Merkel ist ein Glück für das Land, a blessing for Germany. I asked him what's changed. I think now we are in a new situation. Since the federal elections last fall, we are in a different situation. 
And definitely now she has lost the grip about her party. Bavaria and Hessen elections are extremely severe. Uh, the Christian Democrats have lost, together with the Social Democrats, both of them have lost more than 10% in two very important state elections. And you can't go on with business as usual. But what is the reason for that? What has changed in what used to be seen as the, the Merkel recipe is clearly not cooking anymore. Her strategy was leading from behind. She was uh, mostly silent and uh, she was waiting uh, how the events will develop. And when she had a certain sense uh, for the majority, then she took a position. This was a successful strategy three times. But the fourth time, we have the new party, the far right, the extremists from the far right, this is the AFD you're talking about. AFD, yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, the AFD gave a certain uh, perspective for the future, a nationalistic one. I think for Germany, it was a terrible thing, but it worked to a certain degree. And uh, Merkel's strategy did not work any longer. You could see that in the last, in the fourth uh, election campaign, that it didn't work any longer. And Angela Merkel's big mistake was she didn't have the capability to reinvent herself and trying to lead the country from the top and not from uh, behind. For example, she made the right decision because no German government would have survived two days if we would have sent police force to the border and uh, if we would have... Uh, stopped uh, with aggressive police force, uh, the refugees coming in from Austria, from Syria. No German government would have survived that. But she never explained it to the people. She never explained it to the people. This was a, a, a big mistake, I think. So we're talking now, just to be clear, about 2015 and that influx up to around a million refugees coming from Syria and from North Africa. Yeah. A lot of people think many of her troubles now go back to that time. But I think you were supportive of the fundamental decision. I think it was the right thing to do, not to stop them by the use of police force. But then you had to communicate what was the situation. Then you had to explain in which direction we will go. What will that mean for us? And how will we manage that? You have to do that in such a serious uh, crisis. And that's what she didn't do. But isn't that because it's easy for those in the liberal wing of politics, and I would include you very firmly in that, to say, oh, it was all fine. It's just the Chancellor couldn't communicate it well. But actually, maybe the society was not ready for such a large number of people. Maybe the society is still struggling with the task of integration. Now, I think the situation was there. Mistakes were made before, long before. So, for example, the German government uh, reduced their contribution to the UNHCR. Um, and uh, this meant uh, also uh, cutting back um, uh, the the support, the financial support for refugees in uh, Jordan and other Middle Eastern states, Syrian refugees. So people were in total despair and started to move. Then we had the situation in Hungary. Orban deliberately 
escalated the crisis in the, in the train station uh, in Budapest to make the people walk to Austria uh, and Germany. So uh, it, it was uh, mistakes were made, political strategies were behind that. Uh, everything uh, happened then. Just to bring it back to Angela Merkel, if, if we could, it does look like that decision will be seen as defining her legacy. Am I right about that? It will define her legacy, and I think in a positive way. But as you mentioned, I belong to the liberal camp. I'm not a nationalist. It was a a very, uh, I think, humanitarian-based decision. And if she would have explained it to the people, if she would have been a real leader, I think the negative outfall wouldn't be so bad as it happened later on. But you really think the, the rise of the AFD could have been prevented? You don't think that that had been sitting there, so to speak, views in the, the population that liberals find difficult to, to understand? Well, the rise of the AFD is not only refugee-based, it's played an important role. But uh, it's not only Germany. Nationalist parties are on the rise everywhere in Europe. Let's talk about the Greens. Uh, you must be pleased as uh, one of the, the, the first people in the, the Green Party who took, took uh, big jobs in Germany starting in the 1980s, I think, when you were sworn in as environment minister uh, in one of the, the states wearing your sports shoes, your trainers. And that, that caused a, a bit of a fuss. Do you remember that? Yeah. I can't forget it. That was just a time when the Greens seemed to be coming very left field. People were quite surprised at this more relaxed style, this irreverent style of politics. And there have been ups and downs. You've, uh, you ended up as, as foreign minister, indeed, in the coalition. Where do you think the Greens sit now and what are the opportunities ahead of them? First of all, I think uh, the Greens uh, were very successful in Bavaria and Hessen and uh, doing brilliantly in the national uh, polls. The Greens moved uh, into the center, but the green issues, take for example, climate change. Climate change would change everything. People realize more and more that it will get serious and we need answers. And most importantly, in the national polls, the green answers to these challenges are extremely well received. far beyond the core electorate of the Greens. Thirdly, we had a successful uh, generational change in the party, a new young leadership, uh, uh, and we had overcome our old conflicts between the different party wings, left and right. So the party is doing well. I wondered where you see the end of the Merkel era leaving her influence more, more broadly there, I mean, she uh, has been a, a supporter of greater EU integration. She has tried to, to come well, up for well, solutions. Well, well, what well, do you well, think? I don't buy that. I was always very critical about uh, her crisis management with Greece. At the end, she developed a, a more forthcoming approach. But I think the, at the beginning, uh, the mistake was made. Many times I ask myself, what's the difference between Angela Merkel and Helmut Kohl in uh, the perspective of European integration? And Merkel decided at the beginning of the financial crisis in 2008-09, 
that no European answer should be given. There should be a national answer be given, coordinated in a European framework, but no European answer. And uh, this was, uh, I think, a fateful decision in the wrong direction, uh, knowing the importance of the Eurozone. So what legacy does she leave, the EU? She leaves for the EU. I mean, the EU survived, the Euro survived. This is a, a very important legacy. But I have mixed feelings. She never pushed forward a closer integration. She um, didn't give an answer to the proposals of President Macron. We still uh, don't know what this would mean, but this is extremely important for the future of the EU and uh, the future of the Eurozone. Italy now is a, another big challenge. And don't forget, I'm talking with London. This will be also the year uh, where Brexit will take place. It is on our minds. You're, you're quite right. Do you think she's handled Brexit well? Her priority number one, and this is in the national interest of Germany, is to keep Europe together. I think this was uh, underestimated in London from the very beginning that uh, the priority of Germany was to keep uh, the 27 together. Nobody wanted uh, a Brexit in Germany, of course, but we, on the other side, couldn't risk a breaking up of the 27. So this was the contradiction. Is there now a power vacuum? As we look to the end of the Merkel era, do you perceive a power vacuum at the heart of, of Europe. The answer to Henry Kissinger's old question, who do I call if I want to talk to Europe, was for a long time Angela Merkel, wasn't it? You will be well advised to call her, but also uh, since more than a year, you would be well advised to call Paris. So Mr. Macron is the beneficiary, possibly, in European power. Come on, this is this traditional British view. We are not in Europe in the 18th century any longer. If Berlin goes down, Paris goes up, and so on. That's not the reality. Berlin and Paris are extremely important, both of them. Angela Merkel, for the time being, will stay in office. And as long as she's in the office, she will play an important role in the EU. Because Germany is playing an important role. But there is also a new, young French president who has changed the landscape in France. He's struggling, but... He's, uh, I think, the most important person at the moment in the EU. And so you have to deal with both. We don't need to go quite back to the 18th century to put Angela Merkel in the context of German history, but at least to when Germany was still divided. Andreas Röder is part of an advisory group of historians to Angela Merkel. He's also the author of Who's Afraid of Germany? The History of a European Problem. I asked him how the quiet Chancellor rose to prominence. She has passed a highly unusual career. Think there is a woman from the GDR who prevailed against a men's world of guys socialized in the West German party networks. So Angela Merkel, of course, gained from fortunate circumstances when she became party leader in 2000. But at the same time, she has an enormous will to power 
and she always has had high skills in applying it. And an, an, another peculiarity of Angela Merkel is that she has been permanently underestimated. She always looked, and I myself experienced her as looking as if she couldn't hurt a fly. But <laughs> she has been a real power woman. But that's an interesting analysis, given that power has quite quickly slipped from her hands. She is not the candidate again for her party leadership, but she wants to stay in office for at least a, a long transitional phrase. Now, this sounds unrealistic on many scores, but give us some historical examples. How many chancellors have managed to do that a spagat, as you say, doing the splits in German? Do you see any precedent for her being able to carry that off? There have been mainly two social democratic chancellors who were not head of the party. This was Helmut Schmidt in the late 70s and early 80s, who always said that this was his greatest failure not uh, to obtain the party leadership. However, the question is whether the party would have followed him if he had been chairman of the party. Another case was Gerhard Schröder, who in the wake of his chancellorship uh, retreated from uh, being head of the party and handed it over to Franz Müntefering. But this was already part uh, of his final loss of power. So having this in mind, Angela Merkel always said that it was her precondition to have the office of being head of the party and the office of being chancellor uh, united in one hand. And she so often said it like a mantra that it is highly difficult for her to get back from this position. What are the problems that you think that Germany faces now, as opposed to the ones that you've seen and discussed during her tenure? Your book is called in German, Wer hat Angst vor Deutschland? Who is afraid of Germany? I mean, who is? According uh, to my observation, most of the European neighbours are, since the fear of German predominance is predominant in European sentiment. We witnessed this in the European debt crisis in Mediterranean Europe, and we observed it in the refugees crisis in Eastern Europe. At the same time, this is highly surprising for the Germans who regard themselves as good and highly moral Europeans. And this is another pattern that Germans regard themselves as weaker and more harmless than others do. So today, I don't think that anybody any longer fears the military menace of Germany. But François Mitterrand spoke about the nuclear bomb of Germany and he meant the D-Mark, the German Bundesbank and the German economic power. So this means that the threat of economic predominance is still very vivid within Europe and it was mirrored in the blame of austerity in the Euro debt crisis. Was that fair? There is a story from outside saying the Germans were quite late in reacting to the Euro debt crisis and that they ignored the problem of the German uh, surpluses uh, and that the Germans were bad Europeans or, as Hans Kundnani says, they tried to apply a geo-economic hegemony. The German story is the completely different one. Germans said we are having treaties and Greece broke these treaties. They got into crisis and we helped them even if the treaties did not oblige us to do so. So we were good Europeans. Both stories are in a certain way highly consistent, but they don't fit to each other at all.
Isn't that the challenge then for Angela Merkel's successor to bring these two narratives together? And can that be done? I mean, the conclusion of your book is that it's very difficult to assuage these fears because the very might of Germany tends to stir them up. Yes, what Germany is facing is a, is a certain kind of dilemma. So what is new is that nobody expected leadership of the Kaiserreich uh, in the late 19th century. But federal Germany of the early 21st century is expected to exert leadership in Europe. But having said that, if Germany does, there is the suspicion that Germany is seeking for predominance and hegemony. So what I would say, what Germany needs and what Europe needs is a leader who combines German leadership, which is missing in Europe on the one hand, with consideration for the others. The German problem still is a problem of balance, and this is a question of statecraft. And um, let's just get a bet from you. Who do you think Angela Merkel's successor will be? My guess and at the same time, my favorite would be Friedrich Merz, the unfulfilled hope of the Christian Democrats since 2002, when he was defeated by Angela Merkel. In a certain way, it would be a great story when her old opponent got into power now in 2018. It would be a great story. It probably wouldn't be Angela Merkel's choice, would it? I don't think they see eye to eye on a lot of things. Of course not. Merkel would uh, be in favor, I think, of Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. But in a certain way, Friedrich Merz represents the strong desire of the Christian democratic heartland, which feels massively neglected during the long years of the leadership of Angela Merkel. Thank you very much, Andreas Reda. Thanks for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you. So two possible successes there, a return to core Christian Democrat values with Friedrich Merz, or Mrs. Merkel's preferred successor, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. But how soon is the CDU going to need to make that decision? And would either of these choices be able to preserve that shaky coalition? Joining me in the studio is Christopher Lockwood, our Europe editor. Hello there, Christopher. Hello. You've been slaving over a hot lead. In fact, you've, you've brought it in, this leading article, still warm from the photocopier. Give us a preview. What have you been saying? Well, I think I start from the position that Angela Merkel's authority has now completely evaporated. That's partly because of the very poor election result that we saw and also because she herself has announced that she is completely a lame duck. She's not going to run in another election. She is standing down as party chairman. She herself, back in 2004, said that when Gerhard Schroeder did a similar maneuver, that the, the jobs of party leader and of chancellor had to go together. And it's pretty clear that they do. You can't really push things through parliament unless you control parliament, uh, unless you control the dominant party. So I think um, she was right then. And, and uh, now uh, she's in a position where it will be hard for her to stay on for a very long time. Of course, on a technicality, you, you can. Helmut Schmidt Absolutely. was never party leader, but it is usually a sign of a problem, isn't it? Of a dysfunctionality, usually with the party base. She says she's going on till 
2021, or at least she's well, with she that. Said as, she's as a, willing to willing do it. To and I think on. that's a very interesting yeah, point. word that she used there. She's almost saying to her party, look, you know, if you want me to stay, I'm prepared to do it, but I accept that you might not want me to stay. And now I think it depends what happens in the leadership election. It's entirely possible that she will end up with a party leader that she doesn't like very much and doesn't agree with on, on quite important issues. That could either be Jens Spahn or it could be Friedrich Merz. In either case, you'll find it quite difficult to get on with that person because they disagree profoundly on both migration and on Eurozone reform, just to take two mm. rather important issues. So the chances of her being able to, to run an effective government with a party leader that she disagrees with profoundly be quite small. Also, of course, as soon as you get a new party leader and because, and this is why it's different to the situation with Gerhard Schroeder in 2004, because she's made it clear she isn't interested in running in the next election, everybody's going to be looking to this new party leader who will be the presumptive chancellor candidate next time around. So, so that person will be the dominant force in German politics, not her. For any listeners who haven't got their head deep into coalition politics in, in Germany, and there might be some... Oh, perish the thought. Perish the thought. What are these issues that you think will define the post-Merkel era? What is this fight about? If we, You've mentioned a couple of names there, Mr. Merz and uh, Jens Spahn. Why do they disagree with her? Where do you see the fault lines now lying in German politics? Well, one of them is historic, and it was the migration question. Now, the interesting thing there is that Angela Merkel doesn't really seem even to agree with her former self. She, she said in the last election, this will never happen again. This is the same person who earlier had said, we can manage this. And clearly, it's been proved that Germany wasn't very happy managing it. For all that a good job was done on integration, and you know, I absolutely take my hat off to it, the fact is it was clearly politically very controversial. It led to a serious loss of support from voters defecting to the AFD, the alternative for Germany. And it's been very difficult. As a result, Angela Merkel had to say, you know, we won't do that again. So historically, the people that might succeed her uh, opposed that decision at the time. So I don't think, you know, that will sit very well. They will be inclined to want to toughen up border controls, deal a bit more strictly with deportations and so forth. So there'll be one source of tension. And then another will be over the whole question of things like Eurozone reform. Don't forget that these things are still very much pending. The December EU Council was supposed to look at quite detailed proposals for deepening Euro cooperation between uh, richer countries and poorer countries, setting up things like um, a fund to help countries that were undergoing structural reform uh, and also to take steps towards a guarantee system that would underpin banks. Now, lots of Germans don't like this at all. And Angela Merkel is on one side of the argument, her likely successor quite possibly on the other side. So there'll be quite serious disagreements to come. What about Angela Merkel's role as a great pin-up for liberalism at a, a time when it, it is under threat in, in so many countries on both sides of the Atlantic. Remember, we once ran a cover that called her the indispensable leader in Europe because of her outlook both in the refugee crisis, but more broadly, that became a, a bit of a liability for her in some ways. And yet there will be many people who are regretting 
the passing of the Merkel years because they fear it's just another brick out of the wall on liberalism. Are they right? I, I think they are right. Um, clearly, liberalism is under a, a fairly unprecedented assault that's being driven by a reaction to migration. It's being driven by job insecurity. Many things are making people very unhappy with the established parties. And, and Angela Merkel absolutely represents those established big tent center liberal parties. Um, I think the passing of Merkel is you know, precisely bad news for, for many a liberal. But the fact is, it's happening because of those forces. It's, it's a symptom of this assault on liberalism, not really a cause of more of it. I suppose we ought to let you get back and finish your editing. What's your headline? Can you share that with us yet? I would say that uh, this isn't just the beginning of the end of Merkel. This is the end. Her authority is now gone, I would say. She has really no authority to do anything hard or difficult anymore. Christopher Lockwood, thank you very much. Thank you. And this is the end of The Economist Asks this week. We're on email, radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And don't forget to rate us preferably on Apple Podcasts, if that's your thing. I'm Anne McElvoy. In London, this is The Economist. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.